Our next speaker is the only man speaking today, Will Vanderhart. Um, I don't know how he gets through, but um, we had him last year, and he's very good at all these subjects. So he spoke brilliantly on Wari last year, and he's taking us on a journey about guilt trip this year, which sounds interesting. He's the vicar of St. Peter's West Harrow, where they have an NHS practice in, in the church, and he's the chaplain to it. He's the co-founder of Mind and Soul, which is a website looking into uh, exploring um, Christianity and mental health. And um, Will has a huge interest in this whole area of mental health and a lot of experience in it. He's written the book, The Worry Book. Um, I keep buying it and giving it away to people because it is so good on that. And um, he's also co-written with his wife the pregnancy book, which is probably only relevant for a few of you here today, but you never know. So, and that is a very good book too. I have started, I started reading it. Never too late, is it, to read these things. <laughs> you never know what you might learn. Um, and I recommend that too. Um, he is married to Louis, and they have two little children, three and five, or just about to be five. Um, Will is second-generation Dutch, and um, so if you can't understand him, it's because he's speaking double Dutch. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really bad joke, but it's Will's joke. So, <laughs> But anyway, we're so grateful to Will for coming to speak to us today. Thank you, Will. Well, it's lovely to be back here um, at Free to Be, and uh, let's pray as we go on a little journey uh, out of persistent guilt. Father God, thank you that you can reveal those things that are hidden in the darkness, and we want to pray today as we continue on a journey with you, we would embrace a freedom that can only uh, be provided by you, and um, we ask you now, Father God, would you Release the church from the burden of false guilt and set us free in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, you know, I, I choose all the enjoyable subjects to, don't know, to look at. Guilt isn't one uh, you'd necessarily get too excited about. But, but, but we've worked out um, in a period of study and uh, interviewing that, that actually the church is hugely disempowered by guilt. And, and it's really ironic because actually we're the place that know about how to get free from true guilt. Uh, and when we ask people on the street to come to Alpha, very often we get the sort of response of, I feel guilty enough, why on earth would I want to go to church with a heap guilt upon me and make me feel really bad? I, I think, hold on a minute, the, the church is the antidote to guilt. So why is it that people have a perception that we're in the business of making people feel bad? Uh, and, and it would be brilliant if we were such a great example of people who feel so great that everyone in the world knew that we would overcome our guilt. But of course, the reality is that we all know that many of us are still struggling with guilt issues, despite knowing that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. I'm reminded of Agnes, a woman that we interviewed in preparation for the book, a 75-year-old single lady who was a missionary in, uh, in Asia for a large portion of her life. She's been sold out for Jesus since she was a teenager. Uh, she's been single for God in the way she's decided to live her life. She's one of the most prayerful people I know. She's one of the best counselors and supporters of people. And when I said, I'm writing a book about guilt, she said, I'll take four copies, please. <laughs> I, said, um, I said, why would you want four copies? She said, oh, didn't, I, I've struggled with guilt my whole life. She says, I just feel 
I feel terrible most of the time. And I said, well, why do you want four copies? She said, oh, I've got three friends who've got the same problem. <laughs> and I thought, hold on a minute, this woman hasn't done anything that I would kind of classify as being particularly terrible, or, or even terrible, or even bad. Why is she so bound by guilt? And, you know, she whispered to me this confession because she felt bad that she felt bad. She felt guilty that she felt guilty. And I reckon that so many of us in the church share that same guilt. You know, you might be laughing because you secretly feel bad too. Actually, that, that, and actually is it difficult to share that reality with someone else? You know, we all want to make big proclamations about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. But actually, many of us are feeling really broken, really bound on the inside. If we start the journey, I, I, I want to begin everything from, from, from a biblical perspective. And when I read the Bible, the Bible to me is good news for people who are guilty. And, and the scripture shows that everyone is guilty. It's a universal condition. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us is guilty of falling short of God's standard. And it doesn't matter whether we've missed them up by a millimeter or by a mile. We are all guilty people. If you read there in Hebrews 10.22, let's draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And then when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I'm reading all that and I'm thinking, that is great. I need some of that in my life. Hold on, I've already received some of that in my life. So, so why, why don't I feel like that? You know, the Bible speaks of a freedom that we all want. And the question I'm asking is, why do so many of us still feel bad about historic sin? Why do we still feel bad about mistakes that we make? People that we feel that we might have offended? Little things that have happened, maybe not things at all. Just waking up in the morning and have that that dread guilt feeling. Well, let's start with a few assumptions that Christians make about guilt. The first assumption that Christians make about guilt is that all real Christians feel free from the guilt of the past. This is one of the first assumptions we make. This is why we keep the whole thing secret. All real Christians feel free from the guilt of the past. We make big protestations about our feelings of freedom because they actually identify us as real Christian people. Secondly, feeling guilty indicates that you are guilty. If you feel bad, if you feel guilty, it's because the Holy Spirit's clearly convicting you of sin and you are guilty. Thirdly, feeling guilty about confessed sin is a sin. Why are you reminding God of something that he's forgotten? If he's taking your sin as far as the east is from the west, why are you going over to the east to bring it right back to the west? Leave it where it is. Why are you doing this? Number four is, I'm totally responsible for everything that I feel guilty about. I'm completely responsible. It's no one else's fault but me. And fifthly, there's only one sort of guilt, and there's only one way of dealing with it. You know, in the church, we we just have two speeds, guilty or not guilty. Uh, That's it. You feel bad? Good. You need to go to the cross and sort it out. But we haven't thought about guilt uh, in a very developed way. Ironically, This problem with guilt has been evident within the church for a long period of time. In in the 17th century, Reverend Jeremy Taylor said, they repent when they have not sinned, and they accuse themselves without reason. And in the 18th century, uh, Reverend John Fletcher said that they're tormented in their consciences with imaginary guilt. And he was a contemporary of Charles Wesley, and Wesley said, this is properly termed a scrupulous conscience, 
and he says it's highly expedient to yield to it as little as possible. The great thing is, even though the language is slightly archaic, they recognize that there weren't just two speeds of guilt. It wasn't just guilty or not guilty. There was something else in the mix. They used the word scrupulous conscience to express that there's a sort of guilt that doesn't fall into the normal Christian categories. And so we identify these two types of guilt, true guilt and false guilt. Now, true guilt is what we're going to deal with first. And you guys should know all about true guilt. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to tell you this. I want to tell you that you have a guilt problem, and being in church is good news for you, because the only opportunity to get free of true guilt is provided by the person of Jesus Christ. That's reality. There is no other agency on earth that can release you from the bonds of true guilt. Only Jesus can. And that is why the church is really good news for you. And if you want to know more about that, I recommend recommend you go on the Alpha Course, find out more about the Christian faith, and get free of true guilt. True guilt is an awareness that one has violated the moral law of God, and it's produced partially by conviction of God's Holy Spirit, and partially in agreement with our own consciences. And true guilt is actually truly valuable. We should, if we're truly guilty, we shouldn't say, oh, I feel so guilty. We should be saying, thank God that I feel guilt. Because guilt leads me to a place of true freedom, which I find in Jesus Christ. God uses guilt to influence and change our minds about behavior that's wrong so that we can be in closer fellowship with him and with our neighbor. This is called godly sorrow that leads a person to repentance in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And it's a conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. People mistake God. They think God wants to come and kind of gloat over the fact that we're sinners. When actually God's saying, let me demonstrate that you are guilty in order that you might come to me and find rescue and rest. So true guilt is a true gift, but false guilt is something else. So here's a breakdown of true guilt for you. Isaiah 51 3, it's a great passage of repentance. For I know my trans. Sorry, that passage is wrong. That is Psalm 51 3 and 4. There we go. Good job. I know my Bible. Uh, For I know, David's saying, my transgressions and my sins are always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. True guilt results from real and determined acts, is a true sin in God's estimation has not been confessed to God before, and it can be restorative and growth-inducing. Imagine I was walking around Kensington, I find a great big BMW, I get angry that someone's got such a lovely car, and I take a brick from someone's garden and beat it up, smash the window screen and knock out the lights. Now, if I then feel guilty about it and go and ask my friend, I say to my friend, oh, I I smashed up someone's car because I felt a bit jealous, my friend might say, oh, poor you. Well, that's a disaster, isn't it? Why did you do that? Well, I was a bit angry about it. I feel really guilty now. And he says, oh, don't worry, my friend. I absolve you of all sin. Is that, is that enough? You know, have we done enough to pay the penalty? Well, it's not his car, is it? So actually, it's only the person whose car it is that I've broken who can actually say that they forgive me for that act. But actually, that act is just one sin or demonstrating the whole of the nature of fallen humanity. So it's not just the fact I've done his car in. He's not the only person who has to forgive me. It's actually God, who, who, who is the arbiter of all things good, who has to forgive me. You know, God has the power to forgive because actually it's not, just, it's not our ability just to say, I'm sorry. It's God's decision about whether we can be forgiven or not. That's why true sin points us to a true saviour. 
True sin uh, points us to a true saviour, so true guilt is a good thing. And here, you know, we see ourselves at the place of the cross. And there's three ways we can approach this. I'd say that true guilt leads us to a true saviour, and that begins with true acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge our sin, and that's where our consciences come in. And we have to invite the Holy Spirit to make our consciences true and real. The second one is true authority. God has the true authority to forgive us for our sins. Not even the owner of the BMW has the authority to forgive us for our sin of smashing up his car. Only God can truly forgive, so he has true authority. And thirdly, there's the value of true atonement, and that's at one the word means. And that means that actually God brings all things together through his son, Jesus Christ, who's a gateway for restoration uh, between us and God. So God uh, invites us in the process of good conscience, of, with true guilt, to a true acknowledgement, a true authority, and a true atonement. That's why it's really good news. Now, what I want you to do is park true guilt and uh, true forgiveness over here, and we're going to leave that there right now. Okay, so everyone just mentally leave that on that side of the stage, because now we're going to do the work that we really are here to do. This is a work looking at false guilt, and um, if we just look at the foundations of false guilt for a moment, here's Zechariah 3, we've got, uh, we've got this Joshua standing in the middle of this amazing picture, and uh, he's standing there, and the angel of the Lord is beside him, and Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. And in this passage, the Lord uh, rebukes Satan, he says, the, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, and, and then he says, unclothe the man and take this filthy turban from his head and, and this ephod from his body and, and replace on it this fine, clean linen. It's a, it's, a, it's a demonstration of restoration. But what's special here is that, is that actually there's this work of accusation that's taking place uh, that we all experience. And the scriptures point to Satan as being the accuser. And in the middle of this psychological and spiritual journey about false guilt, that part that he plays in our world is a really significant and important one. So false guilt results from general or ambiguous ideas. It would not necessarily be considered a sin by a mature Christian friend. Uh, False guilt could be repeated, confessed, historic sin. Um, It undermines our identity and our self-worth. It's ultimately toxic for our personhood. And it results from various things. And I call here guilt induction cultural rules of comparison, unsafe anger, projected emotion, low self-worth, and spiritual warfare. Now, you don't need to break all of those down, but let me give you an example of uh, guilt induction. Now, some of you guys will be thinking, this really will isn't a problem for me, and I want to say to you, bear with me. That is great. Praise God. When it's the prayer time, you can pray for your sister in Christ who has got this problem. Okay, it's good for you to understand this problem because this will enable your discipleship and enable you to help other people get free. If you have got this problem, and if there's only five people here with this problem, I am still doing the right thing, and I believe your freedom is significant to God. And so we're all going to sit here and pray that we bless you and God will set you free. So just know that if this is you, this is okay. What I'm suggesting here is that false guilt is part of a psychological and spiritual battle that it binds the church and disempowers the saints, and it steals our peace. False guilt is not the same thing as true guilt, and we have to understand this third speed of guilt if we're going to understand how to respond to false guilt. Now, if you've got bubonic plague, and I've got the medicine for bubonic plague, it's not a very nice medicine, but it's a very powerful medicine, and I give you that medicine, and you get well from bubonic plague, 
That's good news. I don't think we're in any confusion about that. If, however, you haven't got bubonic plague, and I've got this very powerful and quite dangerous medicine, and I keep giving you this medicine, despite the fact you haven't got this disease, that ain't going to make you any better. In fact, it might make you worse. And what I want to suggest to you is that actually when we're trying to treat false guilt, we've been treating it with the wrong medicine. And actually, we need to take a different approach and view it in a different way. Now, some of the work that we've done identified that guilt induction parenting makes some people susceptible to false guilt in later life. Now, by this, what we mean is parents who parent their children using guilt. Um, What happens here is a parent who maybe is exhausted or depressed start using language which makes the value of of the child's behavior linked to the parent's experience of different emotions. So don't do that, little Johnny, because you're making mummy feel so down. Okay, sorry, mummy, I don't want you to feel down. Well, then don't do that, Johnny. Okay, this is an idea of guilt induction parenting. If you do that, you know, it's really upsetting, mummy. Mummy feels very low at the moment. So please don't do that because you want mummy to be happy. Now, amongst small children in infant development, this sort of guilt induction parenting makes them believe that what they do has greater emotional significance than it does in real terms. Now, one of the worst examples of this we found was when I talked to a woman, interviewed a woman about, about the, the guilt uh, induction parenting. She said to me, oh, doesn't everyone's mums do that? And I said, I hope not. <laughs> and she said, oh, that to me all the time as a kid. Mum used to say things like, um, if I was swinging my, swinging my legs under the table, and that was a bit annoying, she'd say, oh, don't do that. You're only doing that because you want mummy to die. I said, uh, I said, I said I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry? She said, oh, yeah. No, she used to say that. Like, um, you know, she'd say, oh, you know, any annoying behavior, you're only doing that because you want mummy to die. I said, oh, my goodness, are you serious? She said, I thought that was, I thought that was what everyone's mums did. You know, children who grow up through guilt induction parenting styles have a propensity to then absorb guilt at a later stage, which isn't associated to their wrongdoing. They believe that they must be guilty, acts that they engage in of any kind, which are not immoral, they believe have significant social or relational consequence. Therefore, they feel bad all the time about what they do, even though what they do is just a scruple, as Wesley was saying. It's a scrupulous conscience. It's the conscience that's been distorted. Now, I'm aware that I'm speaking, obviously, to maybe a thousand women today. It's great. Thank you for humoring me as a man. But, you know, I, I'm, many of you know I'm passionate about women's issues, and I describe myself as a masculine feminist. Um, and, uh, you know, it's my, it's my belief that women have a rough deal in terms of guilt. I'll talk a bit later about some uh, psychology behind that. But, but women have a rough deal in our society increasingly because actually there are cultural expectations and standards of women which are portrayed by a very uh, aggressive media which makes women feel bad about who they are just per se, just as a standard experience. And, and actually... The model of, of womanhood that is projected upon you by our society today is an unattainable model which makes you feel culturally deficient, which in self propagates a sort of false guilt. So if you constantly feel that you don't meet up to the standard, and that might be a physical, emotional, familial, or professional standard, actually that not matching up 
leaves you with a residual sense of false guilt. Have you done anything wrong by not matching up to a cultural standard that is unobtainable? No. But do you feel like you've done something wrong? Yeah. So, so there's a cultural experience here which is really significant. Sometimes anger, which you perceive to be unsafe, can be a false guilt experience. So if you're really angry, but you're unable to express your anger, maybe um, emotions were unsafe in your family group, maybe you weren't allowed to express anger appropriately at home, often the anger you experience towards other people can be inverted. We call that intropunitive hostility. And that intropunitive hostility is about turning the knife that was pointed outwards inwards. And actually that can be expressed to self as a form of guilt. And you might not be able to verbalize it or you might be able to rationalize it in your mind, but actually it's saying, I don't feel safe being angry and I feel like I need to turn that in on myself and now I just feel bad. I feel guilty. And I feel guilty that I feel angry. Who here, just as a show of hands, sometimes feels guilty that they feel angry? Great, half of you. That's a good number of people. Okay, and, and, and again, as Christians, we layer on top of that a reality that we shouldn't feel angry. You know, ang- something's wrong with anger. Let me just remind you, it says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say anger is a sin. Yeah? So we have to be, anger is an appropriate and healthy emotion. If you can be angry, you can be happy, and if you can be happy, you can be angry. Okay, so let's just get, get connected to some of those concepts. I know this is big, broad brushstrokes, but this is to help you recognize where some of these feelings come from. Let's look at false guilt again on the screen with relationship to um, an ABC's concept. So false guilt is a reaction. It's an emotional experience, and I'm suggesting that whereas true guilt comes from real events, false guilt comes from feelings. So true guilt responds to real concrete happenings in the environment, primarily. Of course, we can think bad thoughts. We're going to hold those for a minute and just imagine concrete experience leads to true guilt feelings. But with false guilt, feelings are nearly always the first experience that we have rather than events. Have a look at this. What we're suggesting is that there's an intersection between your behaviours, your thoughts, and your emotions. And from this kind of matrix, we get the idea of cognitive behavioural therapy, which most me and Rob, who Rob's a consultant psychiatrist, and we work together on these projects, we tend to use cognitive behavioural therapy as our primary change tool. It's a very helpful tool to use. Just linking your thoughts and your emotions, I've put an IB, and these are called I-beliefs. It's not branded by Apple, it's branded by me. Um, I beliefs are the beliefs that you have that link together your thoughts and emotions. So if they're like a filter between your experience, your thoughts, and your emotions, and the emotions you're experiencing will be influenced by the filter through which they're fed. So for example, if you grew up with guilt induction parenting, and you believe that what you do has a, a very grand impact upon the people around you, you feel very guilty about anything that you do that has any impact. So you're filtering it through the belief that actually you're probably going to cause other people pain. And that means that you read the world accordingly. Now, R.D. Lang says, false guilt is, um, is felt at not being what other people feel one ought to be or assume that one is. So there's a sense of deficiency in false guilt where people often feel like an imposter. We, in the church, we often talk about imposter syndrome. You look good and you feel bad. I always feel like this. You know, I'm up on the stage, I'm speaking to all these people, you know, and I'm thinking, why am I here? Is someone else going to appear in a minute and shoo me off the stage? 
why, why might I be here? There must be some mistake. And then I had to come in back into humble connection with God and go, oh, you've asked me to be here. Okay, oh, I'll get on with my talk then. Uh, you know, we have a filter, we have natural defaults, which are very much part of a broken human nature, and we're filtering our experience through these. Now, I don't think Aladdin is a very good Disney film. I'm sorry. I, I was tempted to burst into I Can Show You the World, which I won't do. I've had a bracelet, I'm a bit like Betty Suarez today, um, and I'm struggling a little bit to sing or even to speak. I think Lion King is the best Disney film. And, um, oh, it's a little dark, but um, here, is, here is our dear Simba, and he's looking terribly guilty and sad. My pitch is better than that one. It's a bit of a dark sky. Um, and uh, this is the idea that I feel guilty, therefore I am guilty. This is one of the primary mistakes we make about guilt. And in the church, we've been very careful not to disempower the true saviour through disempowering true guilt by getting confused with false guilt. So we've just avoided it altogether and said, everyone, if you feel guilty, you are guilty. Quick, go to the cross and confess your sins, just in case. But that's not a very good remedy. Simba feels really, really guilty. Who knows the story? Is Simba really guilty? Brilliant. This is great. Thank the Lord for Disney. Now... You all know in the film that actually Simba believes that he's guilty, but he is not actually guilty. Therefore, his guilt is false guilt. And he's grown up to believe that through guilt induction parenting, not by his own father, but by his uncle. Very interesting, this scar who had an agenda for that. Uh, and I, I love the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we shall see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and complete, but then I'll know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. What we're doing here, friends, is shining a light and looking carefully in the mirror. You know, we're exploring this to say, let's look carefully. What does this really mean, and how can our experience be changed? Kirby Anderson said, usually a person driven by false guilt is afraid of freedom because in every act of freedom is the possibility of offending someone. Offending someone is unacceptable. Other people are seen as pipelines of approval. If they are offended, the pipeline shuts down. Now, if, friends, if we've grown up with a desire to seek approval from others, uh, you know, because we've been parented in a particular way or because we've had very traumatic life experience, then false guilt can be really our experience. Are you, are you one of those people where everyone says, oh, you're so nice. You never offend anyone. Have you ever asked yourself why? Let's have a look at the actions, I beliefs, and consequences. So here's dear Simba, little baby Simba, and he is, um, he's just nuzzling up towards his father, Mufasa, who's dead. Now, let's think, if you haven't watched the film, I'm not going to relate now. We haven't got time. But uh, Simba is tricked into believing that he's responsible for the death of his father by his nasty uncle, Scar. The action here is the death of Mufasa. The I believe filter is things like the statement in his mind, I am to blame, I have been accused, he's accused by his uncle, uh, I am uncertain whether I am to blame, and I am also young and unwise. So he's believing, uh, he's filtering the experience through his internal beliefs. And the consequences of this are crushing guilt that lead him to feel deeply ashamed. He then withdraws from the family and sends himself off into exile, 
with a small pig uh, and a meerkat. Um, and uh, this, uh, this exile leads him to eat grubs rather than nice meats, and he gradually grows up with a secret story. Uh, he becomes introvert. Uh, he's divisioned. So he doesn't want to go and help his family in the Pride Lands who are suffering and starving. He wants to hang back uh, in his private exile and avoid doing what he's been called to do. Now, many people who struggle with false guilt in the church do not volunteer. I was talking to a group of leaders not so long, long ago and saying to them, they think that they've got reticent churches. They haven't got reticent churches. They've got guilty churches. People who are not volunteering are very often, often not volunteering because they haven't got the time or the inclination, they're not volunteering because they don't feel good enough. Have you ever felt yourself like you're a pew warmer? I'm just here, just, you know, this is okay for someone like me. I'm a bad person. I've kind of sneaked in. This is good, but this is as good as it gets for somebody like me. You know, we're divisioned by false guilt. We're told we can't. And we become very defensive. So people ask us about our lives. We're like, cool, what do you want to know? I mean, what are you going to do with what you know? And, and so we keep a secret story. So A's are our actions and events. B's are our beliefs about these events. And C's are the consequences that we experience. And um, you know, I, I want to just really challenge this. I just believe God wants to blow this stuff out of the water. Because you know, we have a perfect savior for a true guilt problem who's released us to life and life in all its fullness. And then so many of us, including me, friends, have been bound up by this false guilt problem. So we find ourselves ruminating all the time about those little peccadilloes, those tiny things that we've done wrong, and shame from the past. You know, I've been interviewing people who've been going back 20 years. And some of the interesting, some of the older people we've been inter interviewing, they can't remember the good things that they've done in their lives, but they tell you all about the bad things. One chap had a list he had a, a sort of list of, of all of the bad things that he'd done. Just to kind of, he wanted things that he wanted to make right, you know, from 1947. I mean, we're not talking about big things. We're talking about people I offended. You know, and, and we have this, this expectation. Imagine, I, I brought Sue in the water cooler in before, but, you know, Sue is at the water cooler, and, and, and you come into to the open plan office, and, and you're going to go to the water cooler too, and Sue is there, and, you know, Sue gets the bubbles, and you kind of giggle, uh, you know, making light of the bubbles on a Tuesday morning, and Sue just looks at you and then walks away. Uh, and you're like, oh, oh, hi, Sue. Hi, uh, morning. And she doesn't turn back. You know, and, and, you, and you take your glass of water, and you're looking at Sue, and, and then you go back to your workstation, and all day you're kind of looking at Sue... I Sue. I know, and Sue, and Sue doesn't look at you. And you're thinking all day, what have I done to upset Sue? <laughs> and you're feeling so bad, and you're remembering the one time at the Christmas party where you, you took Sue's chair, or maybe you danced with Sue's husband, but it was all from a distance. It wasn't like Ariana skydiving. It wasn't nothing like that. It was all very proper. You, know, you just feel so bad. You just think that you feel so guilty. But you haven't done anything wrong. 
You pray to God, God, forgive me for whatever I've done to Sue. Father, forgive me. You know, friend, it's just not you. You know, this is our experience of real false guilt. This is a this is a daily experience for some of us. Fear of offense. Fear that approval is going to be stripped away. Fear that we're an imposter. Fearing that we're going to get caught out or found out. You know, when I became a priest, um, I, I, I remember thinking, there must be some mistake. I remember looking at the red tops for a little while, just in case. There was a pit, you know, Will Vanderhaar has been made a priest. Clearly, this is a mistake. I could see it on the front of the mirror. <laughs> now, we believe that there's a problem. When all of our true sin has been dealt with, but inside there's still this broken mechanic. Uh, one of the very interesting things that we found, uh, you know, I'm trying to convince you of something, which is that, is that whilst you're all truly guilty, many of you are struggling with a problem that is not true guilt. And um, one of the very interesting studies that came out recently was the uh, guilt and shame proneness scale. It came out of the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh in the USA. And it's, it's a really good study. The study was actually established to suggest, to, to work out people who were unethical, to basically help companies that, have, that work with sensitive material, like GCHQ, for example, to employ people who wouldn't steal their secrets and post them on the internet. So they were trying to find people who were, who were basically uh, very impeded or had lots of, of, kind of, um, had lots of moral uh, kind of blocker, blockers that would stop them from uh, engaging in immoral behavior. So brilliant. By association, by coincidence, if you like, they found out that 30 to 40% of the population fall into the category of high guilt and shame proneness. This is regardless of their religious or not, or not religious experience. But 30 to 40% of people fall into this bracket of high guilt and shame proneness. Now, at the bottom of the scale here with, um, what's his name? You know, the chap, the Hulk. I don't know why, but it's just Lego, okay. Um, so, down here are what we call sociopaths. So, these are people who have such low guilt and shame, they have no impeding behaviors, they have no blockers. So, these, lots of these people are either in prison or are no longer with us because they engage in behaviors which are so risky, so dangerous, and so unsociably acceptable, then, then most of them are, are kind of actually locked up. And some, some psychologists and psychiatrists work with them to help them to empathize with victims. So some of us get a bit angry about the whole criminal justice system. They think all this kind of victim and aggressor thing is all a bit wrong, getting people to write letters to their aggressor. It's actually really good psychology. Okay, so bless that, because it's actually helping people to understand they haven't got the same feelings as you. If you go through the middle there, you can see people become gradually less antisocial, although I'm not sure about those three. <laughs> he doesn't look very social, but he's up there for all the punks in the house, okay? So there you go. And then... Um, and then, you know, people become much, much more kind of socially normal. So in the center there, there are folk who, who, were, who were middling on the guilt and shame proneness scale. But right up at the top there with the red cheeks, he is the empath. So he's the opposite of a sociopath. He is so feeling. He feels everyone's guilt. And when he's doing prayer ministry on a Sunday, he is weeping. <laughs> oh, she is weeping. They're weeping with everyone. They're absolutely emotionally exhausted by the end of the day. They've been crying for hours. They've heard everyone's stories, and then they go home and they sit down. They feel completely broken, overwhelmed by the guilt of everyone that they've prayed for. And they were praying for all sorts of people, some people down here, green people they were praying for, who'd done <laughs> terrible things. They've done such terrible things. Now the person up the top there is taking almost home, and they're thinking, I'm a mad murderer. 
So, what I'm trying to suggest from this slide is, is that there is naturally a guilt and shame proneness scale on which we all have a position. Now, if you want to download this stuff on the internet, you can find out where you are. But I'd like to posture that many of the women in this room today will feature high up on that end. Many of you will feature high up on that end. It's funny, isn't it? You can be in your home group. You're feeling terrible that you did a bit of a, a sneaky right turn when there was a no right turn sign on the way home from work. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's someone, you know, someone who's, been, who's done time in your home group. And they are filled with the joy of the Lord. And they are telling you how light their spirit is, how they've done people over, you know. But that's fine, because Jesus. And you're just thinking, I don't get this. This guy is so free in the spirit. He loves the Lord. The Lord is blessing him. It's so wonderful. But me? I feel terrible all the time. I only turned right at a no right turn. <laughs> could you, friend, be featuring high up on the guilt and shame proneness scale? You could well. And what I want to sort of suggest to you is, if you can kind of get your head around this idea, you can start being a bit more compassionate towards yourself. Therefore, when those guilty feelings come in, you can start going, hmm, that's interesting. Now, I'm the sort of person who features quite far up that scale. And therefore, the fact that I'm feeling bad right now doesn't necessarily mean that I've committed some true sin, therefore I'm feeling truly guilty, but actually I might be responding to something which actually doesn't need the same sort of medicine. So let's look at false guilt response for a few things. False guilt is a result of, firstly I've suggested high guilt proneness disposition, which is relating to the previous graph, a guilt induction parenting experience as a possibility or traumatic childhood experience, Issues around low self-worth and self-esteem, those things all relate to the idea of approval. So if you're someone who, who has a strong uh, social conscience, but a slightly inflated social conscience, if you're desperate to find your place uh, in life or in the church, and you're seeking approval for others, you can experience high levels of guilt, uh, which are misplaced. We can have a miscomprehension of the theology of grace, which is where we want to bring in some of the theological stuff and do that again in a moment but also could be symptomatic of a mental health diagnosis. Now, I, I said already, I have GAD, uh, which is not as exciting as it sounds. It's Generalized Anxiety Disorder, and I've had it for uh, most of my life since I was about seven. And um, I've got lovely parents who didn't make me feel guilty at all, but I somehow, uh, through my mental health diagnosis, uh, have, a, have a struggle with guilt. And part of my diagnosis involves sort of um, obsessional thinking. That's part of the GAD diagnosis. And if you experience anything like that, that has a lot of guilt related. So there's a lot of protection, response, high levels of responsibility. Makes me a very safe person, but possibly too safe. So if I get paid out a little bit more than I should at the garage, which happened not so long ago, I'll check the bill. I'll think they've paid me too much. Then I'll go back into the garage and have an argument with them about why they've overcharged me. Well, they've undercharged me. No, yeah, well, they've undercharged me. Why I've got more money than I should have. And they're thinking, are you an idiot? <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, I just feel bad. So just take the money. Take all the money. I'll give you all my money. I'm going to go away now and feel better. So uh, if, you have a, if you have a mental health diagnosis like me um, in any of these neurotic issues, then the, the, the likelihood is that you have 
Uh, guilt is, a, is, a, is symptomatic of your mental health diagnosis. So acute stress disorder, bipolar disorder, depression, depressive d- disorders, dyspnea, seasonal depression, grief, um, uh, hypervigilance, post-traumatic stress, uh, especially obsessional compulsive disorder. If you're an OCD spectrum person, OCD uh, is something you hear a lot about in the newspapers. It's often very poorly represented, but within OCD are uh, guilt and doubt, two core components. So you feel guilty and you feel doubtful. So that is a very strong element of your experience. If you spend your whole time confessing, that is what's called a compulsion, makes you feel better, but it keeps the whole cycle of guilt alive for you. It's not true guilt. C.S. Lewis said, some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith, but their afflictions, not sins, Lewis says. They're afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions... They are, if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ. You know, Lewis is suggesting here that, that actually the experience of false guilt is an affliction, it's not a sin. Now, I hope that offers you some reassurance, because for some of you, feeling guilty has influenced your relationship with God very negatively. If you like, you've been stuck in this place of confession, saying, God, if you could just make me feel forgiven, then I'd be able to go and do something for you. Lewis is actually saying, this is not a sin, this is an affliction. And like all afflictions, get busy serving God despite how you feel. You know, I always come and talk to large crowds of women, it's great therapy for me. It helps me get over my anxiety disorder, thank you all, I owe you £97 for the hour-long session, whatever it is. You know, but it, it, you know, get busy doing what God has called you to despite some of those negative feelings. We're going to come on to that for a minute. But um, Charlie's painted this wonderful um, painting and, and, and this lovely sculpture. And um, I was in his garden recently, and I was modelling. Hey, check it. I was loving it. I know. It was good. I didn't know I was going to go and do that. I just went for a chat. But he told me to stand here. It wasn't the exciting bit. It was when he was doing the sticks and the wire. And, if, you know, it's the pre-bit. Um, so I was standing like this, and I was trying to, like, model Tim some arms because he was doing a new sculpture of this. And, and whilst I was chatting to him, I just was really struck by the limpness Actually, that, that actually there's not a lot of work going on here. That the prodigal daughter or the prodigal son is, is completely hanging in the arms of God. And um, a lot of false guilt is actually orientated around activity. You know, it's not about resting in God. It's about being busy trying to undo how we feel, the bad feelings that we feel. And actually, a lot of this uh, expression that we see before us is about abandoning ourselves to God. I'm going to come on to that in a minute. In Romans 5, 6, as you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And the key, the key motif here is powerless. But actually, we have the opportunity to acknowledge our true sins and receive true forgiveness, but some of us here are experiencing feelings which we are powerless to overcome, but he is powerful. He is our all-sufficiency. And so, like the hamster in the wheel, we don't want to keep running and getting nowhere. I'm not going to do that again this year. Uh, we <laughs> Um, we're not going to get, start running and getting nowhere. We just have to acknowledge at one point our powerlessness here and stop the typical cycle of confession and trying to work out what really happened. One of the temptations, of course, about bad feelings is our desire to get away from them as quickly as possible. And, and actually, it's our intolerance of some of these negative feelings which are really detrimental. It, you know, if you feel guilty... And you say to the church, I feel guilty. The whole church says, turn to Jesus and you'll feel better. So those people struggling with false guilt turn straight to Jesus to kind of confess. 
And for a moment, they feel okay. Trouble is, because it's not true confession for true sin, they make change. Nothing's changing. And so if we try and get away from our, true, from our false guilt, it's about, a bit like being a bungee jumper, not the same as being a parachuter, which actually means you really do get to the ground. So parachuting could be a motif for true guilt, because actually you've jumped out the plane and you've landed. But bungee jumping is a good motif for false guilt, because it looks like you're jumping, it feels like you're jumping, but actually you get to the bottom and you just bounce back up again. You know, you dive out and then you bounce straight back. So trying to get away from false guilt, trying to get away from those gnawing false feelings, strengthens the guilty feelings because it makes it look more authentic. So you keep jumping, you're saying, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to keep confessing my sins to one another. It further damages our self-esteem and makes us feel worse about ourselves because we keep reliving every little minutiae of our life, everything that we do regret, mistakes that we generally have made. It extends this idea of the imposter that I'm, I'm no good, I'm worthless, I need to hide, I need to protect myself with walls. It undermines our faith in Christ, which actually is awesome when you think about it because it actually our faith in Christ really does the business of transform- transformation of our lives. And, and it's a repetitive cycle. We keep going round and round and round. Uh, Steve Shaw says, in essence, there is no hope in the system set up by an overactive conscience. You must always try harder, but you never cross the finish line. You seem to merely go in circles. Or perhaps it would be better to say that you go in a spiral, as in a downward spiral. Life is a perpetual treadmill. You work hard and strive, but you never arrive. Life is hard work, and frustration is yours with so little or no satisfaction. Now, that's the experience of many people when it comes to, from, to false guilt. The trick is not trying to respond in the same way. And here are a few treatment approaches as we move forward. So we're offering, if you like, we're suggesting three treatment approaches to start with. Um, and you can do all these. The first one is called responsibility pie. The second one is revaluing guilty feelings, and the third one is abandoning abandonment, which I mentioned a minute ago. I want you to assert your false guilt bill of rights, okay? I love rights, it's great, isn't it? I talk about lots of people, rights and responsibilities. So I want you to assert your false guilt bill of rights. I want you to say to yourself, I have the right to enjoy the complete forgiveness that Jesus offers me. I have the right to inherent worth that is not dictated by what I have or have not done. It comes directly to me from God. I have the right to receive new forgiveness without shame, even when I have made mistakes. I have the right to accept the mistakes of my past as being in my past without punishing myself for them today. I have the right to express myself, my needs and my desires, despite my feelings of guilt. I have the right to enjoy and engage fully in my activities without being hijacked by the agenda of guilt. I have the right to be assertive and angry when that is appropriate and necessary. I want you to assert your false guilt bill of rights by living out these things. Who would like some of that? I would like some of that today. Let's have some of that because actually these are all yours. The great news is because Christ has done what he's done on the cross... And because we can do some of this extra work on this false guilt, scrupulosity stuff, all of this stuff comes together to offer this beautiful opportunity. Now, to engage with these tools properly, we have to just recognize that we have some overvalued guilt ideas. 
You can only feel what you're feeling when you're feeling it. You feel happy? You feel happy. Try and recapture the happy feeling a couple of days later and go, I think I'll bank that. I'll go to the fridge. I'll get out the happy feelings that I was feeling. Now I'm going to drink the happy feelings and I'm going to be happy again because today's been a tough day. It doesn't work. You can only feel what you're feeling when you're feeling those feelings. And guilt feels urgent or significant. That's why all guilt feels the same. Your brain, your experience of the neurochemistry of your brain, does not distinguish between false guilt and true guilt. If that was the case, you wouldn't respond to false guilt at all. If you're struggling with false guilt, it will feel the same. Now, it's an imposter. It's like a wolf dressed up in sheep's clothing. They all look like sheep, but one isn't actually a sheep. One is a wolf. Just because it feels real doesn't mean it is real. The second one is, is, is that we have ideas about ourselves that are unrealistic. And I, I, next year, I hope, if we're going to do this again, I'd love to come and talk to you about perfectionism, which is a real disease of the 21st century church. But many of us, without going down that road right now, many of us have unrealistic ideas about ourselves, and we become incredibly perfectionistic. And again, this is something that's projected on women partly by culture and also is endemic within the church, that we need to look perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But we've kind of missed the mark there somewhere, because actually it wasn't about our perfection in ourselves, it was about his perfection and, and him being within us. So this experience of perfectionism, particularly amongst leaders amongst you, this belief that I must never have done anything wrong, and I must never, ever do anything wrong ever again, is partly what leads us to experience lots and lots of false guilt. That actually people who are in leadership particularly feel like any mistake is terminal. I must live a perfect life, and any mistake I make is clearly evidence that I'm a bad person. And thirdly, we have an experience of what we call um, uh, black and white thinking. This is a kind of absolute thinking style where you are either a terrible sinner of all sinners or you're an incredible saint amongst all the saints. But there's no real world in which you're a normal person who both has the propensity to do wonderful and saintly things and also drastic and terrible things. Now, we have a very, very divided mind. The reality is that we are groaning in tents right now. We haven't arrived in our heavenly home. You are all work in progress you are all liable to true sin, therefore true guilt, and you're also liable to false guilt. But your experience is not a perfect experience. If you believe that you somehow should attain to perfection now, you will be crowded in by false guilt all the time because you don't match up to the standard. And fourthly, we feel blocked without certainty. Many people who feel false guilt want to be certain about everything. As I say, it's a bit like the extreme black and white thinking style, but it's the idea of, I feel guilty, Sue's not talking to me, therefore, I, I, I need to be sure. I'm now going to go and talk to Sue. Sue, all day I've been looking at you over my screen. I went to you this morning, just at the bubbles moment, within the water cooler. I chuckled slightly to kind of lighten the atmosphere in the office. Uh, you glared at me, and then you walked away. All day, even in the toilet cubicle, I tried to get in whilst you were coming out so we would see each other face to face. Even then you ignored me, Sue. Please tell me, what is it that I've done wrong? 
Sue looks at you. Sue says to you, all day I've been bothered by someone looking at me <laughs> from round their screen, laughing when the water came out of the bubbles. Even got into my face as I was coming out of the cubicle. All day I've been wondering, what on earth is it that I've been doing wrong? Your belief that you must have done something terrible to Sue is mirrored by Sue's belief that she's done something terrible to you. Sue's had a bad week. Sue's crashed her car. Sue's mortgage repayments are late. Sue's not looking at you. Sue's trying to get her water and get on with her job. Your desire to find certainty is all orientated around your, your, your belief, if you like, your hunger for that approval, your desire for everything to be perfect and okay. We have to accept uncertainty if we're going to find recovery. Let's look at a couple of tools then if we can overcome some of that concrete thinking style. This is responsibility pie. Now, if we feel guilty about uh, feeling guilty and being guilty are two different things. Before I met my wife, I was in a couple of relationships, as many people have been. A couple of my relationships obviously went down the pan. That's why I ended up with my beautiful wife, praise God, that it all worked out like that. Um, but, but just talking to my wife about my previous relationships, as we did before we got married, I remember feeling very guilty about some of the relationships, why the relationships went wrong, whether I behaved perfectly or whether I behaved averagely or badly even. And um, my description of the relationships, and clearly some true guilt, was mixed in by this sense of complete responsibility for everything that had gone wrong. And uh, that overwhelming sense, the whole thing is kind of absolutely awful and surely everything must be my fault, my problem, is actually a thinking style in itself. Many of you will carry those same emotions. False guilt says you are completely responsible for everything that has happened in your life. I've, I've, we've done some work on this and, and particularly divorcees are a very interesting group. Christian divorcees typically look at a relationship, even an abusive relationship, and they will say things like, oh, I'm divorced. I'm terrible. I'm terribly ashamed. It's all my fault. I obviously wasn't a good wife. Now, you do a little digging. You find out there was abuse in the relationship. You find there was adultery in the relationship that wasn't their responsibility. You find there was mismanagement of money. You find there was all sorts of things, and also random circumstantial things. And whilst the one partner who's talking to you takes a portion of responsibility, the whole pie is not all their responsibility at all. It's not more virtuous, friend. It's not more godly to lie about who's responsible. God doesn't say, oh, good on you. No, take one for the team. Uh, it's just not how it works. Yeah, our, God, our, God's not, our God doesn't want us to exaggerate. He's not an exaggerating God. He doesn't say, oh, yes, you know, oh, good for you, well done. Oh, yes, take everyone else's sin and shame as well on yourself. Oh, no, hold on. I thought I sent my son to do that. Yeah? Let's not, let's not be deceitful, friends. Let's not lie about who's actually responsible. You know, we're talking about bringing the truth to life. We're not talking about exaggerating the truth. It doesn't get you any more spiritual brownie points to say you're completely responsible for everything wrong that's gone on in the world. It's just wrong. We're saying, I am truly guilty for some things, 
but I'm also truly not guilty for other things, even if I feel guilty for them. Yeah? Responsibility pie is an exercise you can engage in. Draw a big circle, make it as pretty as you like, divide up, write the conundrum at the top, it's not countdown, there are no numbers, just, just whatever is the scenario, and then segment the experience into who is actually responsible. Give responsibility accordingly, and also demonstrate what parts are circumstantial, but be specific, be realistic, and most of all, be honest. Kirby Anderson said, a key to understanding the overactive conscience is the word active. Someone with false guilt has a conscience that is always on the go. False guilt makes a person restless, continually looking for a rule to be kept, a scruple to observe, an expectation to be fulfilled, or a way to be an asset to a person or group. Now, we are constantly working to try and find ways in which we are guilty. When Jesus is saying, I don't see your guilt and sin anymore. You're my precious daughter. I love you. We're going to have fun together. The Christian life is not about making you feel guilty. It's about making you know that you're forgiven in real terms. Let's begin living that life. The second tool, if you like, is uh, tolerating guilty feelings. I've talked a bit about tolerating these for a moment. But this is the idea that actually we are neither not guilty nor guilty, those two speeds. We are either not guilty or we're, I'm pretty sure I'm not guilty. If you want to be absolutely certain that you're not guilty, you will ruminate and just kind of work your thoughts continually until you're sure. But the trouble is, when you think you're sure, that will last for about three minutes. And then your brain will provide a new opportunity to challenge how sure you are. And then you'll think, oh, but what about that? And then you'll think about it in a different way, which will make you think, actually, maybe I am guilty after all. And then you'll say, Jesus, I'm guilty. Forgive me for my sins. Now, if you're worried about that, just say, Jesus, all of my sin I'm placing before you in humble confession at the cross. So I'm just going to do that as a coverall, and now I'm going to do the detail. Okay? So try not to find certainty. Just try and allow a level of uncertainty in your thinking. Just think, maybe Sue's a bit off. I'm going to leave it, see where it goes. I'm not going to try and find out for certain. Maxim Gorky said, the most beautiful words in the English language are not guilty. I think I agree with him. But they're not words that we'll necessarily ever hear. Everyone who condemns you and accuses you is not the arbiter of truth. Many of you suffer in your relationships, amongst your families, and are accused of all sorts of things. But just because you're accused doesn't mean you're guilty. We're all in danger, aren't we, of uh, abandonment issues. And we fear abandonment. I love this little cartoon. Well, Doc, I guess I'm here to work through some abandonment issues. <laughs> yeah, that was good, doesn't it? Thanks for coming. You know, um, guilt is an excluding war. Guilt says, I need to withdraw. Guilt is your experience of self-punishment. I need to punish myself for this. When the punishment that's brought me peace has been resting on him. You know, we fear abandonment. And much of our false guilt is about making the world safe so we aren't abandoned. Have you thought, oh, I'm just going to apologize now. 
you know, in case they find out later and then it's going to be doubly bad. I'm going to confess everything right now. I'm really sorry. I'm really so sorry. And they're going, why are you apologizing about that? Oh, well, I just thought you might. No, I'm, that's ridiculous. We are fearful of being abandoned. Therefore, we think we'll get in early with our confession. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will not abandon you. As a mother tends her chicks, I will never leave you. You you are so precious to God. He will not abandon you. No matter how guilty you are truly, or no matter how guilty you feel you are falsely, God will never abandon you. You need to let the voice of Christ, the compassionate voice of Christ, resonate in your own minds. Some Christians really struggle with this idea of compassionate thinking. They're like, I don't want to let myself off the hook. I, I don't want to like, I don't want to like trick myself out of believing that I'm truly a sinner. Well, look, none of us are trying to do that. You know, we're all true, all true sinners. We all need a true savior. You're not here to punish yourself on God's behalf because the punishment that brought you peace was laid on Jesus Christ on your behalf. So there's nothing to pay. God is saying, actually, there's nothing left to pay. Invite and practice a compassionate mind by inviting the words of Jesus into your own minds and actually hearing the words of Jesus. When you're feeling guilty, replaying the words of Jesus, don't fret, my child. I love you. I'm not going to abandon you. You're probably not truly guilty right now anyway. Rest in my presence. Don't try and make a confession to me that you don't need to make. Know that everything has been dealt with. Invite, inhabit, allow the words of Jesus just to resonate in your minds. And where you might can do this physically, I just suggest you write it everywhere, a message to yourself. This is one's on a washing line. Child, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Romans 5, 6, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We're right back there at that place of powerlessness. And saying, I just, I'm powerless, but I'm going to invite Jesus just to speak life over my heart and mind. Chris Tomlin uh, has written a fantastic song I love uh, called White Flag on his new album, Burning Lights. And it says, but I'm not going to sing it to you, lucky. But it says, it's about surrender and abandoning abandonment. It says, the battle rages on, a storm and tempest roar. We cannot win this fight. Inside our rebel hearts, we are laying down our weapons now. We raise our white flag. We surrender all to you, all for you. We raise our white flag. The war is over. Love has come. Your love has won. Here on this holy ground, you made a way for peace, laying your body down. You took our rightful place. This freedom song is marching on. I want to invite you today, just as we step into some time for ministry, if you like, to raise a white flag to the Lord, to surrender your false guilt, to actually say, this is a feeling. It's a feeling I keep experiencing. It's made me withdraw. It's made me cast aside my vision. It's made me cast aside my mission. It's made me build high walls. It's made me excluded when I'm truly included. I'm going to stop trying to fight my way out of this paper bag. 
I'm just going to raise a flag and say, Jesus, I surrender everything I've got to you. I surrender all of this false guilt to you. I'm going to stop trying to fix it on your behalf. I'm just going to invite you in and let you deal with it.